So, welcome back, everybody, to Brubble, a podcast exploring a young voice and perspectives from in and around the Brussels bubble. And we're back after a brief hiatus where I ran off to the beautiful snowy shores of Canada and received my Canadian citizen. Still a Dutch citizen, so, you know, keeping my foot on both continents here. But I'm excited, really, to get back in here and analyze what the biggest stories of spring 2023 were. So in this podcast, we'll be presenting some of our what we thought were the most important things that happened during the last few months, as well as taking a bigger look at the bigger picture that's unfolding in Europe, Europe's place in the world's geopolitical scene. And doing that, as always, I'm joined with some of the my, some of my favorite minds from in and around this gloomy but turning brighter Brussels bubble that we're in here today. Julian, you're sitting in the corner looking characteristically French of your turtleneck. How, how are you feeling today? I mean, I left the beret at home, but I'm feeling good. <laughs> Fair enough. And hi, I guess I'll introduce myself. So I'm Julien Wes. I'm a French uh, political consultant, geopolitical expert, and the editor of the French Dispatch, which is uh, now feeding information into the European Commission. So Congratulations. It's been a great year so far. There we go. And you, you're about a year old at the publication, or just over a year? Uh, it's been... That's a very good question, actually. I think it's a, yeah, just about a year over. Yeah. So for explosive growth in a, you know, quality ground, boots on the ground European journalism. Do my best. Check out the French Dispatch. Let's talk about another boot on the ground sitting beside me. Zhao, bad introduction, but tell us, how have you been feeling? What did you do in life? Well, I've been feeling so, I'm feeling well, and uh, thank you for, uh, again, this another opportunity to be here with you guys. You know how much I really love to do this. And um, just a quick introduction to myself. My name is Juan Ponte. I am Portuguese and I used to work with the Recovery and Resilience Facility and European Semester. And now I'm saving the internal market one barrier at a time. Working at DigiGrow. Yes, working at DigiGrow. There we go. And European Commission. Finally. Uh, and finally, last but not least, Nikos, you're sitting here a lot sunnier than last time. Uh, if those watching the video version of this podcast on YouTube will notice that there's a distinct transformation. How's your life been going? Indeed. Well, uh, number one, I started prioritizing my eight hours of sleep, and uh, <laughs> life has just turned around, so sleep early, kids. Uh, but yes, indeed, my name is Nikos Todosiadis. I'm from Greece. Uh, I work at the Secretariat General in the European Commission, much like uh, Joao. Uh, I work in the unit uh, briefings to the president and vice presidents, which to some uh, may seem uh, very boring, but to me it's incredibly interesting. Uh, I get to engage with so many topics um, every day, uh, completely different, and yet still learning so much and getting so much experience. Uh, I'm here today to speak uh, on my own behalf and uh, no one else as a citizen of Europe. Uh, and I'm really excited to discuss with these fellows here today. Yeah, I think it's quite an exciting time too, to be discussing this stuff. Because when I was reflecting on the past month, it seemed, or months actually, because we're going to be looking at the entire spring semester, so what I consider January till end of April, basically. And it seemed to me that it was kind of slow, but kind of building. It was almost mm -hmm. ominous. And the more and more I read the stories, the more and more I read the headlines, the more almost pessimistic I became. And, you know, as a European citizen and a, and a transatlantic citizen nowadays, this has me not worried, but concerned, I suppose, about the months coming up. How we'll see the changes because I remember last year the this, the September November October's of that year were packed with geopolitical developments mm -hmm. and I feel like tracing what we're looking at today might be a way to read what will come in the future 
So let, let, let's start here, because I'm going to ask each of you, what do you think the biggest story of spring 2023 was? Zhao, you're sitting here pensive, as always, with your notes, well prepared. Damn, I'm the first one to start this time around. Um, yeah. I mean, as as Hakum knew, there is a lot of things that have been happening since January. Um, I, I kind of make like two, uh, brought a selection of two topics basically to speak about. Um, one of them I would like to highlight is the, um, the, um, the release of the communication on the Raw Materials Act and the Net Zero Industry Act. So I think these are two topics, two, two regulations that are very important for our strategic future in the European Union that will in the future help us to reply to one of our basic needs, which is our green and digital transition. So basically what we have here is like uh, the Raw Materials Act will actually allow us to have more um, easiness in uh, permitting and exploiting uh, raw materials in the European Union and also try to diversify our sources of partnerships for us to get the, um, the raw materials that we need in order to drive this transition. And second is the Net Zero Industry Act, which is like the thing, the major um, industry focal point in terms of driving in a transition for a greener industry that we have here in Europe. And uh, it will boost like the acceleration for us in order to reduce C um, CO2 emissions and prepare our economy for the future and a more greener future. So this is one of the major points that I would like to focus that I think it was a huge um, achievement let's, let's for us. Let's that for a second, Devin. Yeah. And, and uh, I really want to ask you then, given you're focusing on a legislative background and, and around the table too, do you think it's enough? Um, I'd maybe, well, um, it, it, I would say that it is not enough, at least at this stage, but it is a start. Mm -hmm. It is a starting point. We actually needed to reshuffle and rethink what we wanted as a strategy point for our uh, raw materials, because it's very important for us to get the basic raw materials that we need in order to drive our transformation in our unit and our industry, and in order not to be left behind in relation to our two competitors, the United States and China. And this would actually bolster our capacity of being self-reliant on those raw materials. So it's a very good step forward. Um, and, it's, and, our, yes. and it's interesting you mentioned our two competitors, the US and China, Yes, because not everybody would point out them being the competitors. <laughs> On the same level, they're not the only competitors. I was, I just wanted to exactly. Chime in. Sh sh should we chime in? Yes, and we'll, we'll get back to you, uh, Jao, mm -hmm. in a second. Uh, I always like looking at uh, international politics from a more geopolitical uh, perspective. Of course, that biases me towards some stories more than others. Uh, I, I agree with uh, with what Joao said, uh, the Critical Raw Materials Act, the Net Zero Industry Act, uh, the Sovereignty Fund, everything that the EU is doing is a very good step in the positive direction. They've been done in quite expedited uh, fashion. The proposals have been prepared, um, which is outstanding for Europe because there is a very strong hope that these will finish before the elections of 2024, when when the institutions will enter a bit of a period of uh, uh, of slower legislation, let's say, because the new legislators will arrive, will arrive in the parliament, uh, the new commission will need to be uh, elected, um, chosen first by the council and then elected by, by the parliament. So it's good that we are doing this now, and indeed there's no time like the present. However, I think... Um, I would agree with you, Simon. 
for me, the spring, and I just want to say to the to the viewers that we consider spring anything after January. So just so that there's Thank no you. misunderstanding. <laughs> Uh, I think the past few months, at least compared to what we have been used to since pretty much the beginning of COVID, m might have been some of the slowest months um, that we see. <sighs> I mean, we keep hearing about the Ukrainian counteroffensive. The weapons are slowly but very, very surely arriving. A lot of advanced weaponry, weaponry very high value um, items and uh, we're bolstering the capabilities and the capacities of Ukraine which is exactly what we should be doing and then some um, and I think with that um, even though it was slow I think China's visit to Moscow uh, was uh, Xi Jinping's rather was one of the biggest stories for me uh, yeah. in, in the new year because number one we have seen in China that was very slow to pick up uh, uh, to get on board with uh, geopolitically what was happening in Ukraine. And they were seemingly trying to play, uh, n not both sides, but they were trying to strike a balance. And that was very obvious by the fact that they were much more quiet um, on this. But I think with the visit to Russia, uh, their peace plan uh, and their their willingness to, to mediate, uh, they've kind of forcefully come onto the... Um, the main table when it comes to uh, to the war. I'm I'm not commenting whether this is good or bad. Uh, I think it it remains to to be seen, and it also very much depends on the side that you're sitting on. But I certainly think, in terms of the geopolitical ramifications that it has, it's huge. And also, it showed that China is supplying Russia with some armor and. Um, and weapons, they're small, small caliber weapons like assault rifles and and things like that. So not uh, air fighters, tanks, and so on and so forth. And usually just some armors and, and ballistic vests for shoulders. And it's not through official Chinese companies, but rather through second and third tier intermediaries. But it does show that China has picked its side, which was no surprise to anyone. Talking about China, because I sorry to divert from from your uh, critical raw materials. No, 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 topic, no, 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 but, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I also did want to touch on China because looking back over the headlines, I did think that their visit to Moscow was significant. But I was thinking, at least from the Brussels bubble perspective, the more significant part was, and as you might be able to catch in an episode in a podcast episode in a week or two, uh, was von der Leyen and Macron's visit to China, and what we saw emerging there, and what I predict will be influencing the discourse in the next months, is how we as the EU will approach China moving forward. Will we take von der Leyen's, uh, von der Leyen's preferred approach of, of de-risking, or Macron's approach of decoupling, uh, mm -hmm. mirroring the American approach? And I think it's a really interesting balance, which the hammer hasn't completely landed yet upon because there's still these tensions drawing us in either direction, especially with our American allies strongly preferring one of the options over the other. And the Canadians, and let's not forget. Uh, yeah, we're, we're a great partner there too. Um, <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Julian, I mentioned Macron here, and you didn't immediately, you know, pull out. He was just waiting yeah. for the hammer to fall. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But do you want to comment maybe on the China ramifications, or do you yeah. want to what go into... I, what I suspect to be a monologue on what you think the most significant thing was that happened. No, I leave month. the monologues <laughs> for my colleagues. But for me, it's... Um, I don't think there's ever any one single theme or event that may, is big in politics or geopolitics because you can't, you can't boil things down to that simple level. Because that's simply just not how international politics works anymore. I mean, 
you have the everything I was mentioned today. You have NATO being reinforced now. You have the fight in Turkey over whether they're going to give Sweden the ac- uh, accession to NATO and all this kind of stuff. They're not. Which all yeah, exactly, which plays into everything and how this goes. Then you have the upcoming European elections, and all of the parties are now geared up and starting to start throwing punches in a sort of preliminary fighting stance right now. But then on top of that, you have other things abroad that are going to impact what's happening in Europe. For example, we now know who's going to be fighting and contesting the 2024 US elections. And the fact that Biden's looking quite good now is big. And we had the failed insurrection in Brazil as well. That showed that there are serious limits now. And most states are ready to combat these kind of January 6th style riots that we saw in the US, which is going to make the far right seem feel more nervous in Europe and also make pro-democrat, pro-liberal parties feel more secure. And then on top of that, you have the Macron stuff. Because a lot of what we're seeing now, at least at the European level, is the an internal and an external fight about what our role and what our reaction to everything should be. Because the whole fight around the Macron thing, and we're going to go into this later, I think, probably, was you're did, here, so let's yeah, get yeah. into it now. Did, we're here. Yeah, yeah, sure. But like, did Macron say all these things that basically destroyed the unity of the EU and then abandon our allies and tell America to go f itself and all this kind of stuff, or was Macron being what Macron has always been and someone saying we absolutely have to have strategic autonomy because we can't be played with between these two great powers and whatever else is coming down the lane. And I think that was a part of the greater conversation with all of the events that you suggested in the outline and everything, and everything that was been mentioned so far, and that we are still fighting over what the hell we want to be. And I think that's going to be more and more of a fight as we get closer to the EP elections, where a lot of the pro-European and liberal and democratic parties are going to hemorrhage seats. And the whole discussion is now more, where are we going, like always, and can we actually get to where we want to be when no one can agree? Yeah. But I think the other question, I think that's what we started with, with Zhao here, is sure we can look at what we want to be, but we still have to make sure the basics are in place, right? And, and that's why stuff like the critical raw materials, the degree industrial stuff, that's why they have, I think, such a cogent role to play, because... A lot of, I think, our politicians, especially certain French ones, have aspirations of what we need to be. But can we even achieve that with how we're structured right now? Zhao, did you have any thoughts or something to share, maybe? Well, uh, that's complicated. I mean, it entails in the the previous discussion that we already had Mm -hmm. in one one of the other, one of our podcasts, um, on what type of European Union we want to be. Mm -hmm. You know, so is it possible to do, to, to achieve what perhaps Macron wants without reforming the European Union? of revising the treaties, of revising the institutions, yeah. naming the role of the council, is it possible? And and this will, in, uh, again, we connect it to another thing that we can approach, which is what is the role of the European Union in the world today? Mm. Is it possible to have a European Union that is solid in the world, in the world stadium, without actually having hard power? So this, and also without guaranteeing its own um, autonomy, its own strategic autonomy. Yeah. Is it possible? What degree should we compromise between what are, what is our in interests in this case concerning China, for instance? As should we look China as a as a major economic uh, partner 
or should we look at more in a strategic partnership way? So should we de-risk or decouple? Yeah. You know, which one should we balance? <sighs> Man, we're sitting here talking about de-risking and de coupling and all these fancy words and it's the same no thing one really uh, it's not well really the the same same it's not the same thing it's not the yeah. same vision but it's the truth is like it's staring us right in the face china is not a friendly country yeah, just because we have very strong economic ties does not mean it's a friendly country let's let's take that out of our minds right now because if tomorrow what is happening today in ukraine happens in taiwan then we start uh, asking ourselves, uh, but 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 uh, are we relying too much on ri Russian gas uh, uh, now? Should we cut it? What are we gonna do? But no one told us anything until now, which is we're kidding ourselves. Let's be honest, because why? Money talks again, and just to to do a bit of foreshadowing, it's the same thing as where I'm standing from as a Greek with Turkey, which is why so many European member states give weaponry and have strong economic ties and have like quarters of their electorates that come from some particular countries um, and they're not willing to to see the truth in its face they're trying to see to find some fancy terms i i i agree with the comments that macron made that europe should not be a vassal of the united states i don't think that we are but I think we free ride on America for a lot of things because yeah. it suits us. First and foremost, defense. How many countries two years ago met the 2% uh, the NATO criteria? And now everyone is pumping money uh, in defense like there's no tomorrow. And yet we still cannot find, for instance, we still cannot produce the proper amount of 155 millimeter um, uh, shells uh, and ammunition for, for the needs of Ukraine. And there is like one war going on in one country. I mean, I don't want to sound pessimistic, but what happens if multiple wars break out on many fronts? Because look at what's happening in Sudan. Maybe, maybe tomorrow it might be Taiwan. Maybe it might be uh, some uh, some crazy person with nuclear bombs. And nowadays there are quite a few, uh, quite a few of them. So what happens then? We and, need. And, to. and it's important to point out there's only one European crazy person who might be able to have a nuclear bomb. There are a lot of crazy Europeans. Yeah, but there's only one. There's only one with nuclear yeah. uh, capabilities. And, then, and that conversation was also springing no. up again. Nuclear capabilities we're yeah. willing to use. Yeah. Regardless willing that, to that, use are two, uh, two different no, things, no. man. I'm just talking about uh, but before nuclear we capabilities. Too much, I think no, but nuclear capabilities, is not, there's at least three. Which? I don't, uh, United Kingdom and, uh, and France, okay, aside from Russia. We're talking about the EU. Yeah. yeah. And, and anyways, but in the, in, the, in the broader scope of the... The conflict. Yeah. Fair enough. Julian, you want to respond to a few points that he was making on the yeah, but it's, it's more like I, I feel like I, I get that it's presented as two different things, the de-risking de and decoupling and all this kind of stuff. But ultimately, they're achieving the same thing is that we're too dependent on China for a lot. We need to onshore lots of businesses and industries and this kind of thing to secure ourselves. And I know politicians like to talk about how, oh, we absolutely have to de-risk because this is better than decoupling because at least then we're still engaged, but okay. it's coming away. For the sake of and the then on the episode, what they are, the yeah, yeah, that, that, that we should we should be first. We're like, talking I mean, with these fluff words, yeah, 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 yeah of course. and it's literally just foam. So let's. Yeah, this is why I don't mention these fluff yeah. words usually, and just talk straight to the. But okay, let's know. explain them. But what basically, we decoupling think it is. is sort of separating the economy away, in the very simple terms, away from China and whoever else we want to decouple from, and de-risking is more staying engaged but reducing our dependencies. Yes, yes. Very so, so the big, the big policy difference would basically be 
tech, technology bands, uh, certain bands on yeah. certain products, where the bands are more associated decoupling, whereas de-risking is still retaining that friendly that, allure, I suppose. No, there's, there's still the like bands involved. Yeah, and, and, but the real issue I find with both of these approaches is even if we want to go for a de-risking approach, there's still Europeans, when we deal with issues like China, we still want to have a human rights or values-based approach. And I don't know if that works with partners like China. Yeah, but it doesn't work with the US either. But they're not pretending to. They're yeah, decoupling. But, yeah, sure. But I mean, the US does a lot of really <laughs> awful things too that we can't let slide because mm -hmm. they're the US and they're, you know, better. I mean, it's not as egregious as the China. But again, again, the using these terms... The US and China. I understand that the US is hegemon and certainly there are skeletons... No, but I'm saying that we, they don't do the same thing at the same scale. That's what I just said. But, this is, and, I, but I, there's I really still like some shady things. The Macron's words here. No, it, but it's true. It was basically making with this... No, but it's like, look, look at some of the shit that's happening in the uh, US right now. Like, the uh, states are just banning abortion left, right, and center. You've got people dying because they can't get abortions. And like, we're going to pretend that there's no problem in the US? Like, sorry, like, no. And on top of that, like, again, I'm not, I'm sp specifically staying away from commission talking points and statements because it's written in political linguistics that's not very interesting to the average person. But mm -hmm. there's, there's a problem in the way that we're approaching this topic where we assume that we have a choice in how we engage with China, whether we can de-risk or decouple, whereas the reality is we need to become as autonomous as possible, but in the long term, we're still going to have dependencies on China simply because of how global trade networks function. Exactly. Same with the US. Everybody's talking, yeah, let's get away from the US. And in some ways we should because we have enough capacity to build what we need in Europe. But there's always these eternal pissing matches between the countries who want to stick with the US because we can't abandon our friends who have been our friends for 70 years now. Whereas some of us are saying, well, we can still be friends with them while just not being dependent on everything they ask and depending, uh, dependent on what we need okay. and then leaving ourselves exposed politically. And this is a problem is that people don't seem to understand that neither decoupling or de-risking are very different from one another because the end result will be the same. We'll have dependencies here, there and everywhere. It's like in the EU, certain countries will produce more simply because they have a history of produ producing things. And then internally, what's going to happen at the political level in the EU is people will say, oh, but we're too dependent on France for Rafael's or whatever. And then, oh, Greeks producing too many bullets. What happens if Greek can't produce bullets anymore? And then we're going to be like, well, let's de-risk from Greece and move stuff to, I don't know, Albania. No, no, it's just, yeah, I think it is important. Even, even if you think that de-risking and decoupling ultimately can mean the same thing, the issue here is... Some countries, as you were saying, cannot in the European Union can also be continue producing. But the main, the major issue that the European Union, the European Union leaders are actually fearing by now, with the IRA and now with also some policies from China too. No. Actually, Inflation uh, Reduction Act. Yes, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. You're, you're, you're in charge of all the. You're, 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 you're in charge of all the. You're in charge. You are in charge to defend the, the, the viewers that do not understand our jargon. Uh, sorry for that. The Inflation Reduction Act, I'm and uh, <laughs> and um, but the issue, is, the main issue is the European Union understands that is losing leverage to these two competitors. Yeah. In the sense that we used to produce. And now we understand that we cannot produce in the same rate or cap capability that we used to. Yeah. And if we completely decouple from China or from the US, but especially from China, yeah. European leaders feel, fear that European companies will start to choose our competitors in to, to, as, as a place to start producing and exporting. 
Yeah, he's gonna need to call this if you hear now. But <laughs> sorry. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, even just so I can just add to what he's go saying on, here. Go for it. Yeah. Like I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I agree. But this is kind of also where a lot of Macron statements in China were coming from. Like, put it this way: we've been fighting our own competition authority in the EU on creating giants who could potentially have the capacity to combat with U.S. and Chinese giants, and even what we fought were Russian giants two years ago. But we've already seen that because of this, we've weakened our own positions. And on top of that, like one fact that baffled me when I heard about the IRA impact, they doubled investments with the IRA in manufacturing. In yeah. the space of like six months of it being active, they doubled investment. And investment in the US in manufacturing was huge. And we do not have any capacity to do something like that in the EU. And we are... Look, sorry guys, close your ears if you're below the age of 18. We are fucked if we can't do something similar. Because this is like, we we talk and talk and talk and talk, including on the Brubble, subscribe, whatever, wherever. <laughs> but we, like, we're not capable of actually having the grown-up discussions about doing stuff like this. And we had the fights over the, the Bi-European Act and, you know, pumping money into, into manufacturing. But then there's always some commissioner somewhere or someone else who comes in and says, oh, but we can't do that because this is going to break single market rules or whatever. And I think this is, to go back to your question 20 minutes ago, this is kind of where Macron was coming at with the strategic autonomy angle, is that we need to give ourselves the capacity to actually do this stuff because we're going to fall behind. Yeah, okay. <laughs> make, make me proud that I kept my European passport here. Yes, I, I will. Uh, and I'm going to fire bullets uh, across all sides. Um, so a little bit of background. Uh, uh, the EU has very, very strong and very strict state aid rules. That means how much support, usually in the form of financial support and subsidies, states, member states, the EU countries can give to companies to support them. Um, so DigiComp, the, the competition uh, service in the Commission, usually is the one that oversees a lot of these things, and there are levels. Uh, to how much support you can give. There are, of course, exceptions to the exceptions. Um, now, these exceptions have multiplied during the pandemic. Then the war started, and then they kept on multiplying. And now, all these efforts, the Net Zero Industry Act, the Critical Raw Materials Act, Sovereignty Fund, all this, which does not matter for people to know uh, each point and each pillar, but these will relax and will es essentially for the European uh, in, in the European law, they will codify within the secondary law um, these relaxation of state aid rules. Now, what that means is that two-thirds of the exceptions the past three years on state aid rules have come from two countries. Julian, you want to guess which of those two are? I know one's France. <laughs> and the second <laughs> For one? Sure. It's not difficult. The second one, uh, wasn't it Germany or something? Yes, it was. Mm. Uh, so, obviously, Greece cannot compete with the sort of yeah. uh, state aid, let alone countries like Malta, countries like Estonia, like Cyprus, uh, by virtue, n not of their per capita GDP, but just their GDP just in absolute raw, value. Raw economic power. Raw basically. economic power, yeah. just like good old-fashioned hard power. Now, the EU is trying to... Um, uh, to alleviate some of that by increasing the funding that we give to companies at EU level. Rightly so. Th th yeah. Rightly so, but that still creates uh, inequalities. Yeah. So that, it, as a Greek, I'm strictly talking as a Greek citizen, but also a European one, is, 
is quite uh, quite unfair. At the same time, however, we were reactive, not proactive, when mm. it came to the Inflation Reduction Act. Yes. It's not like the U.S. is is not an ally. Yes, maybe sometimes they're strategic and they look at things in relative gains and not absolute ones. Yeah. But they're our ally, and. I mean, Joe Munchkin, the, the senator in the U United States, who's Democrat, by the way, he, he came out and said, which is not right or wrong, I'm just stating what he said, is that you knew about it. Telling us, you, Europeans, knew about it. And we didn't do anything. Yeah. And that goes back to, we have something that works, and that is the European Peace Project. Anyone that says that it doesn't work is stubborn. And the virtue that we have not had in these EU member states, uh, a war the past uh, 70 or so years is a testament to that. But is this system sustainable? No. And we need to look at how can we modernize it, not in 10 years and to be reacting to what is happening today, but to fix it now, reacting to what is happening in the world now. And I, I cannot... I, I cannot agree with uh, with Macron saying that uh, the the, the de-risking de was what Ma Macron said, right? Decoupling. Decoupling, yes, sorry. Even we get confused. <laughs> I, I think we need to take um, a hard power approach and, and see that China does not look eye to eye with us on anything other than filling their pockets with our money and our technology. So there is no yes, but there is only you're committing systemic genocide. You're uh, yeah. uh, you, you're about to invade a, a sovereign uh, neighboring country, and the list just keeps piling on, man. There there is no working together because we saw what happens when we work together with these people, and our friends in the Baltics and in Eastern Europe were screaming about this for years, and yet what did we do? We increased our dependencies, yeah. reminiscent metaphorically to a junkie, to a single energy producer that when the time came and the time did come just like it will come with China they grabbed us by the bolt Not all and of then us we were pardon my French désolé <laughs> <laughs> and then we were we were caught like a deer in the headlights at night we were like oh my god what is happening I'll tell you what's happening another country is invading another sovereign European yeah, country yeah but we weren't the ones who were saying let's take more Russian oil we were screaming at Germany for shutting down the nuclear reactors you know still let's Wrap this up a little bit. Zhao, do you want to take the last word? I started with you. You can finish this. I can finish. Go for uh, it. I kind of don't understand what... Uh, you are not um, in favor of Macron's position of decoupling? No, I, I, I'm in favor pretty much of... Uh, of decoupling. Uh, of what President von der Leyen said that... The de-risk. Okay. We need to look at <laughs> okay, so more but, seriously. But as far as I understood from your speech... Um, I agree with this, actually. But you said, go on. As far as I understood with your speech, you are accusing the European Union or European or some European members to being dependent on uh, China for technology and stuff like that. I'm not accusing then, anyone. No, no, no. I'm yeah, just but, stating but, but, yeah. <laughs> but what I mean is, and when Macron actually asked for the harder position, you said, no, I do not agree. Yeah. yeah cause so maybe, uh, just now with your intervention, but... Uh, but maybe we're just referring to the risking or something like that, uh, because you're, you're telling. Maybe I got confused. Ma or maybe I got. Or, no, no, or, maybe, or maybe I misunderstood because what I, what it looked like was, you do not want the European Union to take the risk on being dependent on China, 
I, not on China. I, I do All not right. want us to take the risk on being dependent on any single regime. Okay, we would, yes, we were talking about China and uh, because of the things that they do and stuff like that and uh, the, the genocide and so Which on. Which is the so proposition? Uh, so uh, uh, was still more. Was still more cautious. So yeah. basically, reducing our trying to reduce our dependencies while keeping channels to make dialogue. Exactly. You know, like positioning the European Union as uh, a middle ground between the the, the US yeah. and China. And if and I can, here our brothers so in arms are only the United States when it comes to this. Sure, but no, I mean, I agree. I just agree with you. I was just pointing out that. Uh, just to come in on this point, just to wrap up the Macron stuff, because okay. I I saw the famous Politico article, which was garbage and was not representative of anything, and therefore personally translated the actual interview that Macron did that everybody got everybody pissed off. I can tell you half of what people heard about it was complete shit. And if you go to the French dispatch, I've translated and explained every single bit. And even during that interview, he specifically says... We're not supposed to be running around and being dragged around by the U.S. or China. And he makes a specific reference to the alliance with the U.S. saying, we need to work on what is actually in our interest, but more often than not, our interests will line up with the U.S. So we were never ever saying we're going to decouple from the U.S. as well. We're just saying we don't want to be dependent on them for our defense in our industry. because And that's the big issue. And that's something that people didn't get from the interview. And it is also very important for us to... St- to tone down the situation because I understand that yeah. we are uh, everybody with, 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 with all of this decoupling and the, the risking and stuff we need to understand where we want to be positioned and understand also how the world economy functions you know as Julian pointed out I mean if we all of a sudden start to cut down on stuff start to cut down on all, on all of our partnerships yeah. that we depend on not only as, as final you know like a, as final products but as intermediary products yeah. to make our economy here work because we also import from there not only technology but parts of it, parts of and components that makes our industries actually go. I mean, we cannot go forward. No. Well, there is one place where we always look at things going forward, and that is our selection of elections moving topics forward, as Ooh. I call this little segment we're doing now. Let Nico start it. Just let where him start on topic. I actually want to be the last here. Yeah, because I. I okay. kind of position to these guys is yeah. at least to one of the persons here that uh, they can rant a little bit about a certain election coming up. Um, but I also want to to take a gander at what we took from the other elections which happened, you know, the Finnish elections maybe, what that told us about Europe, maybe even the Scottish elections which are coming up. Or maybe even take a glance all the way forward to the European elections. Or we can just instead look at the juiciest one coming up, which is Turkey. But uh, where do we want to start? Are you sure you don't want to start, Nikos? Um... I mean, uh, elections in, uh, in in Finland, I, I think just, uh, uh, I'm not Finnish, I'm also the furthest thing from an expert uh, on Finland, but to my understanding, issues um, of domestic concern were more important to voters uh, than issues of international concern, despite the fact that the resounding uh, success of, of Finland joining NATO, which is uh, unprecedented and historic, uh, anyway that uh, that that you look at it. Mm-hmm. But to my understanding, that was a very strong determinant 
in the outcome of the Finnish elections. And again, I may be wrong. If I am, please do do correct me. But that's from the reading that I have done and from what I have understood. That seems to be the to paint a, a representative picture of Finland. Um, not th- I, I want to point out there's a lot of elections going on in uh, in Europe at the moment. Yes. Uh, Bulgaria is gearing for elections. Greece is also gearing for elections mm-hmm. o- o- a week after the Turkish ones. Um, I think the Turkish ones are really big uh, just because it's the first time in 20 years, uh, maybe with the exception of the failed coup, um, that Erdogan uh, appears to be as vulnerable as he is, not just politically, but also Yesterday there appeared to be a health scare, or was it the day before, where he he had to stop uh, an interview because he did not feel well. He mm. said apparently that it's uh, because of a stomach flu. Uh, I want to point out that when that happened, Putin was rushed back to the Kremlin, and I saw a video um, posted of his motorcade just speeding uh, away from where a, a, an event that he was at the time. No relation. I'm just pointing out that it's quite <laughs> funny. I guess okay. um, the the margin for for error basically in the Turkish elections appears to be very 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 close. Um, I I don't think it's possible to to call one or the other. Um, I think the Kurdish party and specifically the former presidential candidate and uh, currently a, a person that's in prison. Uh, courtesy of um, of President Erdogan, I am sorry if I butchered the pronunciation, Selahattin Demirtas, uh, which is uh, the leader of, uh, of one of the Kurdish parties. Um, they will play a very strong kingmaker role, and the fact that they they have not submitted a candidate also seems to be an implicit uh, uh, fact that is helping Kilicaroglu. Difficult names, mouthfuls. Kemal, Kemal is. Kemal. Yeah. At the same time, I want uh, to point out that the national alliance that he has formed, which is the so-called Table of Six, is, um, is is not as clear on a lot of things as people think. And I don't think that if, let's say, they win either the election outright with uh, more than 50 plus one uh, in May 14th or two weeks later um, on the 29th, uh, if there's a necessity for a second round, I don't think things are going to be the the, the, the like uh, reproachment with with the EU and the West is not going to be overnight. And they've published a memorandum of understanding with like their policies and outlining a lot of things. Um, but f- f- for instance, just s- some of the things they don't really offer creative positions uh, f- for dealing with with the Kurdish population in Tur- in uh, Turkey. They want to deport Syrian refugees, normalize ties with Assad. They want to return to the F-35 program, but it's unclear how they're going to do, given that um, that they have bought the that Erdogan has bought the Russian S-400 missile defense. Um, and not to say that uh, essentially they're continuing the very hard line on uh, the occupied. Uh, uh, part of the island of, of Cyprus, the so-called TRNC. Yeah, because my whole perspective reading about the Turkish election and getting a bit more familiar was, does this actually make a difference whatever happens here? And it I, does. I, it it does. does. And why it is does, that? It does, but... Uh, well, <laughs> okay. So, uh, they say that they want to move away from the super executive presidential system 
that Erdogan has built into a much more stronger parliamentary democracy. Now, politicians are pretty much known to acquire power and much less to cede it. So it remains to be seen to what degree, um, if he gets in the position where he's the power and he's essentially this extremely powerful figure uh, sitting atop the, the Turkish presidency, if he will be willing to cede this, this power. We don't know enough about him to, to know whether or not he will do it. He says that he will, um, but we don't know for a fact uh, if he will or he won't. But at the same time, I think Erdogan just ha has got, has developed such a cult of personality. Uh, let's call it like it is authoritarian uh, regime based on very hardcore uh, beliefs and the strong Islamism aspect to it. Uh, that I think there's no way that things don't slightly improve. J just the fact that the rhetoric will be toned down is enough uh, for for things to calm down. Will but in Greece and Cyprus, I don't expect uh, much mm -hmm. uh, much improvement. Mm -hmm. Joe, do you want to give some other perspectives on this? Um, I mostly, I mostly, I mostly agree on on Nico. Starting with Finland, uh, just to to say that, pointing out that we call here that there in the previous. Um, recording session when when we did the um, our top 10 one yeah. of the things that we approached was elections and it was called here that uh, actually the center right coalition could actually win the finnish election just to stress that out and why why it happened it was actually interesting uh because we were saying that and even when it happened in the in the elections and everyone was actually surprised that sana lost uh maybe it was not that surprising if you were actually paying attention to the developments throughout the months uh, and um, but uh, Nikos, I, I think he was referring about the potential the impact of the the session to NATO in the um, in the elections. I mean, as far as far as I as, as I saw, uh, the Finns actually were pretty much happy with the, the entrance in uh, in NATO. So I think there was a poll like sixty percent actually approved it. So they kind of uh, felt that this was like a turning point for the country, and they feel like a threat. And NATO was actually the only way for them to feel secure. And uh, perhaps the biggest issue here uh, that made the, the balance, the scales turning was again, as it has been in the other in the other um, northern countries, uh, the migration issues, mm. especially uh, in this particular case, how uh, Sana was trying to solve the budgetary issues and uh, well, the much expendable uh, social welfare uh, state by that they have there debt, by taking more migrants to make up for more the debt, more debt. More debt and also and also allowing more migration to come in order yes. to build the yes. and they and of course the opposition, um, namely the Finns, the party, uh, actually made made something made made this itself like very vocal, but also the fact that the Finns moderated their position, the Finns, the party again, uh, in the for instance in what he regards to the European Union and also to migration at a certain extent, made it be more appealing. To other conservative votes or to other or to the general public, uh, more or less like it happened in uh, in Italy, if you want if you want to recall it. So I think for me it was not a surprise. The only surprise will be how how actually they are going to form a government because they are one deputy shorter to the absolute majority. <laughs> so basically they are like like one hundred and one deputies and they have one hundred. 
<laughs> the right wing coalition. So uh, we can actually have like a grand coalition with the, uh, the the social democrats again participating in the government. So moving on to the um, to the Turkish one, uh, it has been it is interesting this election not only because of this geopolitical importance, but also because how high and low it has been going. You know sometimes. Kamal, so the leader of the the, the, the opposition, the, the, those six blocks, sometimes it seems to be gaining the upper hand, other times it seems to be losing. But the interesting fact is that this guy has been around for ages in Turkey. And uh, in the last, in, since 2020, he has lost all the elections plus the referendum against uh, Erdogan. He's fairly unpopular in the country. And so especially in the coalition, he was one of the least powerful and wanted. So, so, the, but the important, but he's the biggest party. So, the is the the party of uh, Ataturk. So, there's a historical party. Uh, but the thing is, the two other, two of other members of the coalition, uh, the mayor of uh, Ankara and the mayor of Istanbul, both of them were were positioned in the polls to win by a landslide against Erdogan. So they were really fairly popular. But the thing is, um, now I think it can run for each side, but um, it is likely, though there is still a chance that Erdogan still nails the election, still makes it. For the simple fact that um, he can still, up until the, the beginning of the election, as he did in the past, play the Kurdish card. So whenever there is some political insecurities in the country related to the Kurdish people, he plays that card and it works. And the second thing is that um, the AKP, so the, the party of uh, Erdogan, is pretty much controls the state. Yes. And at yes. some degree, as we've seen in the past, at some degree, it can actually play a decisive role. So uh, there is actually a chance for him to keep on, uh, keep on, keep uh, with uh, keep the power. And, but in case that he does not, Kemal. Uh, man, and I, and I and I'm totally on your side on this one. Relations between Turkey and the European Union—it's one one of the objectives. One of the basic they they put forward like a memorandum of understanding that they basically the topics that the, that coalition wants to promote. Mm -hmm. If they are, it's not a government thing, but uh, a pro government program, but it's like a memorandum. And they they say that they want to improve relationships with the European Union in view of a membership. Yes, it's, it's, it's stated there. And uh, in view of uh, with this full membership, so that's their goal. But um, I don't know how, how they are going to proceed because usually if, when, when you have a changing government, you don't have a changing perspective geopolitically wise because geography and its elements still play a role. So if there is still a war there like they have in Syria, most likely a changing cabinet will not make any difference to that regard. We will see if they will be more hawkish or not. But one thing I know for sure, this Kamal guy, in the previous election, he said something in the lines of uh, invading Greece. I, I, I so, want to give Julian this chance to speak So, too yeah, so <laughs> you can see, like, just, just to wrap it up, yeah. relationships with Greece and Cyprus will not uh, be improved if the, in my perspective, if the opposition wins. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just laughing about Turkey as a member state of the EU. That, that's never going to happen. Let's be honest, guys. Like, uh, don't, don't spoil their dreams. No, no, no. I'm spoiling everything. Should I start or should I wait? No, please, go ahead. Go ahead. Go to take a second. I find this really fascinating. Right. Okay. Goddamn, where do we start? Okay, number one, I want to remind uh, our, uh, our viewers, our listeners, that 
Turkey does not recognize Cyprus as a sovereign uh, nation state. So let's begin there before we start talking about uh, membership. Uh, they said that they will open quotation Kemal uh, and, and the coalition. So this memorandum will pursue the objectives of protecting the acquired rights of the occupied uh, territory and all its citizens in uh, in Cyprus. Relations with uh, with Greece are like one tiny slither above all time uh, all time low in um, in my opinion. Uh, of course, it doesn't help that every day uh, Erdogan is threatening to uh, uh, to invade uh, Greece and to take the the Eastern Aegean. Um, I really don't see how any progress can happen in terms of EU membership when um, the 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 2016 memorandum of uh, understanding on migration is not being implemented properly. For instance, Turkey uh, has stopped deportations from uh, uh, not deportations but returns from uh, from Greece to to Turkey. They used the COVID excuse, but COVID has essentially gone out of the the policy limelight for a while now and they have not uh, returned at the same time they're constantly instrumentalizing migration and there are very clear indications that they are not properly implementing and fulfilling their obligations and uh, and, and rights under their um, uh, the customs union agreement with uh, with the EU and I just want to point out, um, that Russia is looking very closely at these elections and they're very clearly uh, hoping for uh, for an Erdogan win just because of how instrumental Erdogan has been in bringing those two countries very close together, especially since the beginning of Russia's uh, unjust and brutal invasion of, uh, of Ukraine. I think they're important elections because they will tell us a lot about Turkish society and what it's, is happening right now, especially given the abysmal state of Turkey's economy and Erdogan's comical um, economic policies. But at the same time, like I, I'm being pragmatic here and seeing that there, there, there is not a lot of potential for reproachment. Like I don't understand why here the EU, in any case, should be the one to make the first step when when things have, have been happening the past years where uh, where there's just no excuse whatsoever. I also want to take this moment to say that uh, I think it was a few days ago, let me just find the date, uh, but Turkey did, um, the Turkish police, the Turkish authorities uh, d- uh, arrested at least 126 people apparently for uh, suspected links to Kurdish militant groups and these included lawyers, journalists and politicians. So. S- very good sign for uh, Turkey's democracy. Again, yeah. this is sarcasm. Yeah. Well, we'll have to start wrapping up really quickly. Before we leave the selection of elections, one person who sat this out conveniently is Julian. Hi. With, uh, <laughs> any, any final thoughts? I'll give you a minute or uh, two. I mean, I think, like, I'm going to say what I said last time when we spoke about the elections. Everybody should just ignore the the polls. The polls mean fuck all at the moment. Like, we don't... Polls always have a huge margin of error and you never know what's going to happen until the election actually happens. It was the same in France when everybody was freaking out about how Le Pen was going to take over or something. Same thing in Scotland, same thing in the German elections and everything. There are always some upsets, even if it doesn't necessarily always happen. So, I mean, I'm 
I mean, look, Erdogan's close to Putin and Putin's been interfering in every election globally for like 20 years now. So like, years uh, now, but since 2014, well, since he's been doing it for a while. Come yeah. on. Like ever since he was in power, he was doing some shady stuff somewhere. Like he, this doesn't just come out of nowhere. But uh, so, I mean, the Turkish one, I'm going to wait and see what happens. I'm leaning towards there's more in favor of Erdogan than against, especially with the weak opposition candidate like uh, Joao Sedalia. And with the Finnish election, it's, it's really interesting because I feel like Sanna Marin took a hit from the more moderate right wing voters when it came to that party scandal that happened, because a lot of the people who instrumentalized that against her all came from the center right, the right and the far right. Yeah. And on top of that, I think people really underestimate the effect that being at war has on people's voting preferences. I mean, ask yourself this right now when when you listen to this. Out of all the parties in the in your country on the spectrum, who do you think of first when it comes to defense? Is the right. Center right, right wing, even the far right because they're the ones who tend to be more aggressive and more defense focused. Whereas Un unless it's a state like Canada or the US, where there is a spectrum on that, there is still hawkish people in the Democrats, in the Canadian liberals and this kind of thing, you know? Yeah, Canadian liberals less. Yeah, but sure. But like they exist. Whereas in Europe, you have that to a lesser extent, but you always think of the right wing. And that played in their favor on top of the economic and migrant issues. But I think the big thing about elections this year, throughout the entire spectrum of the year, is just giving us a sounding board of what we can expect next year. Because the, the parties taking the losses now are the parties who are aware that they are in deep trouble next year. So Sidu Danos is now expecting a complete wipeout in 2024. And that means Spanish liberals, gone. Uh, the Portuguese liberals aren't expecting much either. And I think now people are leaning more towards it being a case of the... Portuguese socialists coming in strong in no, Germany as well. No, I wouldn't no? say. No, no, I wouldn't say. I mean, the Portuguese liberal are are a fairly recent party. Yeah, yeah, no, but they're not expecting like big. No, no, not. Victory, but but, no. I, but I don't expect socialists neither because no? they have not having a huge backlash. Okay, we need to have a talk yeah, about yeah, this yeah, <laughs> And the Germans as well. The FDP took hammering. Let's be honest. And the CDU are coming out quite strong, and the right wing is looking more powerful in Germany, at least on the Landtag level. So I mean, I think that's. You know, I think we should be careful about how we're reading all the polls in general. And I'm not expecting that. I mean, the Turkish thing as well. I just can't get over the fact that we're still talking about Turkish accession to the EU. <laughs> Come on, guys. It's your playbook. Like, like uh, well, it'd be nice, but it's not going to happen. Let's wrap up this episode because we do have a deadline, unfortunately, today. I think this will be our shortest episode we ever recorded. But before you wrap up, I actually want to answer, for uh, to go around the table and answer what we thought the biggest story spring 2023 was you can only choose one we'll go around you get a one word answer basically do we think we can handle this julian i'll start with you because typically you have an idea in your head and plus i will say you didn't mention those french pen those french pension protests at all so kudos to you <laughs> would you want to mention that <laughs> not letting you get the right word. it's it was a really dumb polemic brought up by the far left that's it Lisa, it makes sense. Economically, it makes sense. Socially, it makes sense. Everybody retires at 64 anyway. And we also got rid of a lot of... So what's the one story? The one word. Yeah. The one story. Can I, can I have two? Uh, that's, that's pushing, that's 30 seconds, go. Strategic autonomy. Really? Okay. Done. That actually means... Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. For me, it's actually tough too. But I would have to say Finland joined NATO. 
yeah, I know we didn't talk about it as much, but yeah. Uh, Ch- uh, China's visit to Russia. Yeah, I would still be in EU-China relations category, but are we optimistic moving out of this podcast studio? Because when I was sitting down, like I was saying, I was most pessimistic writing this up. Any? Because it, it got quiet now. Yeah. The, 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 the topics itself in the spring has not been like very. It's, it's not. It's not filling me. The sunshine. Like Twenty twenty-three. Uh, I guess when we were doing this prospects for the year of 2023, we kind of reflect upon that and thought that maybe the, this next year was not going to be like very, very bright in mm. terms of news. Mm. Uh, and in some case, it's kind of right uh, because we still have the war uh, enduring and uh, we have all these uh, geopolitical tensions looming. So it's difficult. It's difficult to actually see the bright side of things. Yeah. Should we wrap up on that? We Anybody should. have a brighter note? No, there's always a bright. Come on, guys. We work on go, politics. Go, go, like, go, go ahead. No, go ahead. The, like, come on. Let's not be depressed because we're just making these people feel sad for like. Yeah, no, don't, don't, this point. don't let them go away sad. Like, guy, like guys. Okay, listen. I'm gonna be the optimistic one, which go is uncharacteristic for the French guy. But there is always cause for optimism. Shit can get a lot worse, but things can get a lot better too. Like, guys, we're we're arguing about things now. We're seeing a lot of pain points. There's bad things happening in the world, but. Let's be honest, in politics, if we all gave up hope, all we would have are like Boris Johnson's running around destroying everything. You have to have hope in politics. If you don't have hope in politics, you can't work in politics, you can't read about politics, you can't listen to it, you can't engage in it, it just sucks. And don't get me wrong, I'm a political operative, it sucks sometimes, but you have to be optimistic. Think of what you can do to make things better around you. Think of how, you know, how much joy you get seeing me and Nico fighting about whatever the hell we fight about on a quarterly basis. Think about how nice it is to be like in a nice place. Let's be honest, if you're in the EU, things are good. And think about how you can have a positive impact on your community. And then just, you know, I don't know, smile and just feel happy. Are you announcing your candidacy for something? Yeah, because so I, by the I, way, I will sign. I will sign, <laughs> yeah, I will, I will sign that I petition will sign too. too yeah. Let's go. Start a petition and see where we can go. You know? There we go. Okay. On that note, I think we're done then for this month. And hopefully maybe next month, the month after, we'll do something else fun. Can we'll I do the nice clap? Experience. Oh, yes. Good to do clap. And we're done. Boom. Nice.